Uh, if you would, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It will be our text for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Uh, in case you're visiting today, I am Pastor Derek Brown, pastor and elder here. Uh, I have the privilege of overseeing college and young adults, our ministry at Stanford, our uh, publishing ministries, uh, Austin has already mentioned, and uh, our online presence. And it's always a privilege to be able to open the word with you. And so today I want to, if you want to just direct your attention to the, the title, today is two basics in, basic instructions for your spiritual growth. Two basic instructions for your spiritual growth. In our backyard, if you were to visit us, you would find two little lemon trees in our backyard. Over the past two years, Amy and I have done whatever we could possibly do to bring about fruit in these little trees. We would hope someday to be able to cut little lemons and maybe squeeze some of that lemon juice onto some fish or into a cup of tea or something like that. Well, to no avail because up to this point, we have been unable to produce any fruit on these trees. We water, we prune, we keep them, uh, we put them in the right amount of sunlight, we believe. Uh, we try to keep our kids from smacking them with bats or hitting them with balls. Uh, but we simply cannot bring fruit out of these trees. I went out a few days ago with Colton to inspect these trees, and one of them looks like it may be done. Uh, it's very clear to us that, quite frankly, we don't know what we're doing when it comes to raising these miniature orchards in our backyard. The Christian life, however, is not meant to be like this. God is not hiding from us secrets to spiritual growth. He does not want us to wander around in aimless confusion, trying this new fad or this new book. In fact, God has made the process of spiritual growth relatively simple. Not easy, but not complex either. In our text today, we find two foundational instructions for spiritual growth, and these are, the instructions are clear, they're straightforward, and actually they guarantee a return on investment. That's right, I'm not trying to win you over with the new, next new spiritual fad or craze or diet or uh, fasting or whatever it might be. Rather, I'm speaking to you directly from Scripture. These are the words of Scripture. And so let's just read it together so we can get our bearings here. Peter writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Do you want to grow as a Christian? The answer is yes, by definition. If new life is in you, that new life wants to grow out into maturity. It wants to fill out your personhood. That's what new life, new spiritual life does. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Yes, you do. Here are instructions for your spiritual growth. I remember it's going to be simple. Number one, put away sin. Number two, long for spirit, pure spiritual food. Put away sin, long for pure spiritual food. Now remember I said it's simple. Not easy, but simple. So let's look at these two instructions. The first one is, Put away soul-killing sin. You, if you're watching, looking on your apps or if you have the uh, outline with you on the bulletin, you can follow along. The first step here is to put away soul-killing sin. 
the word here put away in the ESV has the image of taking off a garment or a piece of clothing and removing it and setting it aside. And it was what the men were doing right before they stoned Stephen. They took off their garments and they set them at the feet of Saul. This is a taking off of a garment. That's the imagery here. And that's how it's used throughout the New Testament. Peter's telling us to take off and lay aside the sins of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander so that we're able to long for that pure spiritual milk. The way he is structuring this passage, he's actually saying this putting off of sin is a prerequisite of longing for the pure spiritual milk. You might be thinking, what is that pure spiritual milk? We'll answer that question in a moment. But what I want us to see is that Peter is giving first steps here. The first step is to put off sin. The New American Standard Bible brings it out really well when it puts these two things together this way. It says, therefore, putting away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and so on, long for the pure spiritual milk. This is something that has to go together. You have to have one with the other. And in fact, you have have to have one before the other. But here's what's both encouraging and sobering about this passage. Peter understands that genuine Christians need to put these sins away. He's talking to believers. Regeneration and the indwelling Holy Spirit do not eradicate sin. They only give you the resources to fight against it and put it to death. Regeneration does not eradicate sin. The new birth does not make you perfect. This passage and other New Testament passages are intended to inform you of the sin that still dwells within you. Don't be surprised. And we'll talk about this more in a moment. But don't be surprised when you encounter sins like malice and deceit in your own heart we are still prone to sin we still have indwelling sin and to deny those realities will actually set us up for major failure or major self-righteousness in our christian life but nevertheless peter is saying to put away these sins as one author has so famously said it years and years ago even centuries ago be killing sin or it will be killing you So what's the first step? What is the first step that we need to do? What's the first sin that Peter wants us to look at? Well, it's malice. Let's look at that here in our Bible. So put away all malice. And you might notice that as he as he goes along, he'll say all malice, all deceit and then hypocrisy. And he doesn't use the word all in front of them. But that's stylistic. We're meant to, to see him being universal at this point. All malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy. All envy, all slander. It's universal. It's not keep a little slander, keep a little envy, but put away all malice. No, it's to put away all of these things, all of this sin. Now, what is malice? I think the English word actually translates well the meaning of this word as it's generally used throughout the New Testament. How does how would a dictionary, an English dictionary, define malice? It's this way. The desire to cause pain, injury, or distress to another. In the New Testament, it can refer to this desire to cause pain or injury. It can also just refer to general wickedness and evil. So in here, I believe because of the other things he's talking about, I believe it probably has this more personal dimension. So that he is referring to something that 
this desire to uh, cause pain or injury or distress to another. The question is, is how do we put it off? How do we put off this sin and other sins? Well, the first step, and this is the step for this sin and for the other sins listed here and the other sins we encounter in the scripture. How do we put off sin? Well, the first step is what? The first step, of course, is confession. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us, to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first step to putting to death or putting away any sin is confession. Which is why we need to realize that these kinds of sins actually can indwell the believer. So that you're not caught off guard when they, when you encounter them. When the Spirit convicts us of the desire to think or feel or act with unkindness or meanness towards others, to cause us to feel spite or disdain towards another person or to the desire to act on that spite, we confess that sin to God. We don't hide it. We don't suppress it. We confess that sin to, to the Lord. And we confess that sin, and with David we say, against you and you only to the Lord have I sinned. We confess that sin. That is the first step to putting sin away. Now, some of us may be kind of surprised at this, at least I have been in the past and even this week, that this word, this sin, would be in a text directed at believers. You're telling me that we can actually encounter the desire to harm others or the desire to want to harm others for our benefit or the, the some blatantly wicked desires or thoughts can kind of well up in, in our own hearts, we can actually encounter that and experience that as believers? The answer is, according to Peter, yes. And we need to recognize this for two reasons. First reason is so that we are not blown off course by despair when we encounter these kinds of sins. It is so easy, brothers and sisters, it is so easy to become utterly discouraged when you start to discover the depth of your sinfulness. And you begin to wonder, how can I possibly be a Christian with these kinds of thoughts in my heart? Peter comes along and says, brother, sister, this is not unusual. When you are born again, you begin a lifelong process of discovering and repenting and confessing of sin. Sin that you weren't even aware of before you knew Christ, sins that you just kind of let fly through your heart unchecked before you came to Christ. So the first reason we need to recognize that these indwelling sins can be and often even will be in a believer is so that we're not blown off course by despair. But the second reason is so that we will not underestimate the power of sin in our lives. If you don't think it's possible for malice or wickedness to be in you, then you will likely ignore it when it's revealed or suppress it rather than confess it. You won't think it's too big of a deal. There is a tendency towards malice. There is a tendency towards sinfulness. We are forgiven sinners. We are recovering sinners. And so there are these sins still indwelling that we have to put to death. When they are exposed, we confess them to God. When they're exposed on an hourly basis, we confess them to God and we find forgiveness in the cross of Christ, which enables us then to put these sins to death. The only sins that you can put to death are forgiven sins. We'll talk about this a little bit 
at the, at the end of the passage. But what's important to recognize is that it is forgiveness from God that enables us to put sin to death. Otherwise, you're simply working in your own flesh, your own strength. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, enables us to freely confess our sins to God. See, we are saved by grace. We're saved apart from our holiness, apart from our sanctification. Christ died for you, fully aware of how wicked you would be. He saved you and secured your forgiveness on the cross when he paid your debt in full. And he did that before you came into existence. So for that reason, you can confess all of your sins without any fear of condemnation from God or the fear that God will cast you aside. Christ has already died for you, and he did that while you were still his enemy. You belong to Christ. You are united to him for all eternity. So freely confess your malice and sinfulness to God and put it all away. Put away all malice. Number two. We want to, we're called to, by, by the word of God, to put away all deceit. Put away all deceit. Again, we're talking to believers here. Be- brother, sister, put away deceit in your life. Put it away. Be done with it. What is deceit? Again, just uh, borrowing from English dictionaries that, that well capture the meaning of these words in their translations. We have English translations that do an, actually a, a, quite a good job of translating the original text for us. What is deceit? It's the act of causing someone to accept as true or valid what is false or invalid. It is the quality of being dishonest or misleading. And that's how it's used in the New Testament, this idea of deception, being deceptive. Now, how, how might we do this? Well, let me give you a few ideas to, to consider. We may stretch the truth or tell a straight-up lie to protect our reputation It could be simply adjusting the details of a story to make us look better or not as bad in a given situation. Maybe we should just stop right now because it's starting to get a little convicting, right? When we've done something wrong, we nurse the story to avoid telling the whole truth. We misrepresent ourselves in order to protect our reputation, our possession, our our, our position, or our possessions, right? This is deceit, and this is what Peter is calling us to put away. Be done with it. Be done with deceit. Be killing that deceit. Don't cultivate it. Don't nurse it through little, what we might say, innocent white lies. That actually only galvanizes sin in your life when we decrease the seriousness of it by calling it a white lie or the stretching of the truth or mere exaggeration. Peter says, Put away all deceit. Be a man, be a woman of your word. Be a man or a woman of integrity. Now, the gospel frees us from deceit the same way that we saw when we talked about malice. We are able to freely confess our sins to the God who paid our debt in full while we are still his enemy. So we can just confess our sins openly and honestly to God, knowing that we have forgiveness in Christ. But let's go a little deeper. How else does the good news of Christ free us from deceit? Well, the gospel gives us Christ. And you might be thinking, okay, tell me more about that. Here's what I mean. We can always tell the truth because Jesus is more valuable than all the supposed good things we might get if we tell a lie. And he is worth all the negative repercussions 
we will endure in this life for telling the truth. Let me repeat that again. We can always tell the truth because Jesus is more valuable than all the supposed good things we might get if we tell a lie, whether that is a possession or a bump in reputation, whatever it might be, and he is worth all the negative repercussions we might endure in this life for telling the truth. He is, like Meredith Andrews says, worth it all. When we trust that God is in control of every situation and in every situation he is doing us good, we can tell the truth, even when that truth may have some immediately negative consequences for ourselves in our lives. The gospel, Jesus Christ, frees us from deceit in a real, concrete, real-time, right-now kind of way. Also, and this is a beautiful thing too, the gospel also teaches us that a good conscience is infinitely better than harboring a lie. Infinitely better. So much better to have a clean conscience than to be harboring deceit. Whether that lie is large or small. You know, the Apostle Paul, I love this. If you want just kind of a theme for your ministry, here it is. The Apostle Paul condensed the goal of his ministry into this little phrase. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 1.5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Part of the essence of Paul's mission was that he could produce in, by the Holy Spirit, produce in people a good conscience, purified by the blood of Christ and through repentance of deceit. How, let me ask you, brothers and sisters, has the Holy Spirit taught you the preciousness of a good conscience? Has he taught you that though painful, it is always so much better to confess your sins to God and to one another where it's appropriate? Has he taught you that? Grace, the gospel teaches us that. The spirit teaches us that. When we are born again, the Holy Spirit cleanses our conscience through the blood of Christ. And then it is essential to our joy as Christians to maintain that clean conscience through confession of sin and by telling the truth all the time. Telling the truth, it's, it, it's not the best policy. It's the only policy. Tell the truth. Let's be men and women of our word. No deceit. Put it away. All right. So put away all malice. Put away all deceit. Christ and the gospel enables us to do this. Put away all hypocrisy. Put away all hypocrisy. This is the next one. Hypocrisy is a kind of deceit, isn't it? It's the attempt to appear outwardly what we're not inwardly. It is acting in a way that betrays our stated beliefs and convictions. And here's the thing. Hypocrisy usually rears its ugly head when, when we attempt to put on a front in order to impress, receive praise from others, or avoid ridicule. Isn't that usually when it creeps up? Hypocrisy is grounded in the fear of man and the desire to be praised by others. That's why the Proverbs said the fear of the of man lays a snare. It entices you to hypocrisy. And hypocrisy in the New Testament is one of the worst of sins. It is what characterized the religious leaders that put Jesus on the cross. It's no wonder that Peter, who saw all that unfolding who saw what hypocrisy does to people, would say that for believers, it's something that you put away. You put away hypocrisy. 
Hypocrisy, as I already mentioned, it's what characterized a religious leader in Jesus' day. Inwardly, their hearts were full of unrepentant sin and full of love of self and a love of money. But they longed to be praised and recognized by their peers and by the other leaders as those who were outwardly righteous and holy. So they labored to appear that way. Matthew chapter 6 tells us that they gave long prayers and they stood on street corners and they rang bells and made lots of noise when they dropped their money into the offering plate. They let everybody know about their external righteousness. Why? Because they had to do something. They had to do something to cover up that inwardly there was no true righteousness going on. But the gospel frees us from hypocrisy the same way it frees us from deceit. First, we confess that sin to God when we find it in our hearts and in our lives. But here, we are helped in our repentance when we recognize that hypocrisy is born out of a desire to find pleasure and satisfaction in the approval and praise of others. Which is why we act differently around one set of people than we do around another set of people. We may labor to appear holy and righteous and godly at church because we want to impress the church leadership or we want to impress other church members when in fact, in reality, we are often mean, unkind, lazy, and unfeeling at home with our family. What are we after? We're after the satisfaction of having impressed somebody. We are after the satisfaction of being praised by another person. But here's the key to rooting out our hypocrisy. We have Jesus Christ. He belongs to us. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our prize. We don't need to find joy in pleasing or impressing others. We have God's approval. We have the Creator's approval. God approves of you in Christ Jesus. What other approval do we need? When we are satisfied in Jesus Christ and who He is and what He has done and what He has promised for us, eternal glory and fellowship, and an inheritance beyond all imagining. We are freed from seeking pleasure and joy and satisfaction from impressing others. It is a battle of desires. It's a battle for satisfaction. Are we going to be satisfied in Christ? Are we going to seek our satisfaction by impressing and getting the praise from others? Jesus says, if that is your reward that you're seeking, you'll get it. It's not that hard to get praise from other people. It's not hard at all. Whether your your uh, stage is large or small. Whether your venue is large or small, it's not difficult to get praise from others. But if that's what you're looking for, you'll get your prize, Jesus said. But that's all you'll get. You'll get that. Peter's talking to believers, but there may be some here today who are just putting on a religious show. And I do want to address you for a moment. You're not struggling with rooting out hypocrisy out of your life. Rather, there's some of maybe here today whose fundamental spiritual character is hypocritical. See, the Pharisees were hypocrites. Christians root out hypocrisy. They were characterized by it. We fight against the remnants of it in our hearts. A genuine believer is a recovering Pharisee. They're not a Pharisee. See, I grew up a lot. Uh, I grew up uh, in Montana, as I think all of you well know now. I talk about it probably too much, um, bragging about how it's the best state in the nation and these kinds of things. I grew up in Montana, and come wintertime, you would find me and my friends on the ski slopes. 
uh, the Bear Truth Mountain Range was only 45 minutes from my house. I could be out my door and on top of Red Lodge Mountain, ready to hit the slopes in under 90 minutes. So the weekends, the Saturdays were often filled up with going and skiing and loved it. And I'm driving up to Tahoe, taking four hours. Forget about it. I mean, I just, it just doesn't compare to what I experienced in Montana. But anyways, that's for another time. But while I was growing up, it, snowboarding started to become popular. At least it was starting to become popular uh, where we were at. And snowboarding had its own, shall we say, culture. You would dress a certain way, you would talk a certain way, you would listen to a certain kind of music, and you'd have a certain kind of snowboarding gear. And it was just kind of cool to be a snowboarder. Well, it became clear during high school that there were two categories of people at high, in high school. Those who truly loved snowboarding and those who wanted to be known as those who loved snowboarding. The latter usually had all the right gear, the right clothing, and even some of the lingo. But you didn't find them on the slopes very often. They didn't make the sacrifices to get up early, fork over money for the lift ticket, spend all day on the mountain, and then drive back home in the dark. They wanted it to appear that they were snowboarders, but they didn't love snowboarding. And when it came down to the actual act of snowboarding, they were found to be, and here's the word, posers. They didn't really love to snowboard. They just wanted it to appear like they did. And if you're here today trying to make it appear as though you're a Christian, but when you get down to it, there's nothing really going on on the inside. There's no real love for Christ or his word or his people. Let today be the day of salvation to be born again is to be changed on the inside so that you genuinely love God, you love Christ, you love Scripture, you love the people of God. And I'm not talking about those in here who are struggling with the ebbs and flows of your spiritual life. Yes, we all desire to love Christ more and love our fellow brothers and sisters more and to have a greater heart for worship. I'm not talking about those who struggle with the height or the depth of our affections. I'm talking to those who have never experienced that heart change of the new birth. If that is you, be done with the charade, repent from your sin, and come to Christ for real. He has paid for all of your sins on the cross. But let's just return to our question for how Christians guard themselves from hypocrisy. We need to say this. We... Beloved, we guard our lives from hypocrisy when we make our hearts the priority of our Christian lives. When we make our hearts the priority of our Christian lives. Jesus rebuked the Jews because they worshiped God with their mouths and not with their hearts. The Proverbs tell us, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Everything, everything Everything comes from the heart. Proverbs 4.23. This is in no way to diminish the mind, right? But it is not enough to have a mind full of truth. It is necessary, but it's not sufficient for walking in spiritual integrity. If you want to put aside hypocrisy, be real on the inside. Continue to cultivate a heart for God and for Christ and for spiritual things. Not the mere form of religion, but its inward power. Make the heart the priority of your Christian life. Cultivate a heart 
for God. And that will galvanize you against hypocrisy. Okay. Put away all malice, all deceit, and all hypocrisy. And envy. Envy. Now surely this doesn't apply to anybody in here. Just maybe me, right? What is envy? Here's what envy is. It's the desire to have what another person has, whether that other thing is possessions or experiences or relationships or influence. It's been called FOMO these days, fear of missing out. Just the modern version of envy, right? But you want these other things, these possessions, these Instagram experiences, these relationships, this influence, whatever it might be, to the point of resentfulness toward that person and ultimately toward God. I say ultimately toward God because when we're resentful towards another person for what they have, who are we ultimately upset upset at for what they have? Well, only the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe who has placed each person in their place and given them what they have, right? Unless we think that envy isn't too big a deal and that we can just kind of let it go and deal with these other big deal, these other big ticket sins, just remember that it was out of envy that the uh, Pharisees handed Jesus over to be killed. It says that in Matthew 4, he knew that, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the religious leaders had delivered Jesus up. They wanted his influence, they wanted his authority and power, and they resented him because they had, but he had what they did not have, so they strategized to have him killed. Theirs was envy run amok, was it not? That's what envy unchecked will lead you to, the desire to get rid of whoever has what you don't have so you can have it, or at least not be reminded anymore that you don't have it. Envy is a deeply serious sin. Again, let's, let's ask, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ enable us to put off the sin of envy? See, we don't want to just come along and say, put off the sin of envy. Just put it off. Just put it off. See, Peter is writing in the context of a book where he is thoroughly explaining the truth of the gospel. He's assuming that these, the people he's writing to already have the word indwelling their hearts that's made them to be born again. So we have to ask, how does this gospel of Jesus Christ enable us to put off the sin of envy? With the counter grace of thankful contentment. We have Jesus Christ and he has given us everything we need in this life. And he is our prize for all eternity. For our good and for his glory, he has entrusted us with certain gifts, talents, opportunities, possessions, experiences, and even trials for his glory and for our good. He has a specific purpose in all that he has given to us or withheld from us. At no point is he wringing his hands going, oh, I should have given that such and such to, uh, to Jim or I should have withheld that from John or whatever. At no point, every single thing experienced in our life is given or withheld by a sovereign father who loves us and desires our good. So how do we put off envy by confessing it to God and by cultivating a genuine contentment in Christ and thanking him for what you've been given? Finally, let's put off slander. Let's put away all slander. How do we do that? What is slander? Goodness, what is slander? Well, just turn on the news for five minutes. 
and you will find out what slander is. It is rampant in our culture. Interestingly, Peter is talking to believers. We will be tempted to slander. Can you believe that? Have you ever slandered someone? Even in a small, maybe, uh, kind of way or a way that you thought justified um, the means? What is slander? It is the deliberate tarnishing of another's reputation by speaking falsely of them to others. Slander is the deliberate tarnishing of another's reputation by speaking falsely of them to others. Again, we might be surprised that we find this on a, on a list of sins that Christians need to be putting away. Don't be surprised. Remember, regeneration doesn't rid sin. It only enables, it enables us to start fighting it and put it to death. There may be some here today who need this strong word from Peter to put away slander. And I'll just say it. Stop talking poorly and falsely about other people behind their back. How unlike Christ it is to deliberately tarnish another's reputation by saying something untrue or half true about them, either out of spite or to get them in trouble or to get them removed out of the position that you want. How does the good news of Christ enable us to put away slander? Let's answer that question by asking this question. Why do we slander others? Why do we do it? Why do we tell lies and say things about others that put people in a negative light? Let me just suggest three reasons and see if this resonates with anybody else in here. And not just me. Number one, we do it in order to exalt ourselves over a particular person and it appear better than they are. Okay? Or we may do it out of a sense of justice because that person has done wrong to us or to someone we know and we think it is good and right to speak a little untruthfully about them to others or to speak ill of them without good reason. Or number three, we do it because we think it serves a righteous cause. And this is where some of us need to be tread very, very carefully, especially those who have a passion to defend the truth. There are false teachers in the world, and there are professing Christian teachers and pastors and professors who teach and write things that undermine Scripture and undermine the gospel, and they make me angry. However, if we're going to speak ill of them, and sometimes... It is actually appropriate to do that if their ministry is public to warn others. We better make sure we have the facts straight or else we will be guilty of slander. So-called righteous ends never justify sinful means. Ever. Let's get that to be a clear category in our minds. Peter admonishes us to put away all slander, large and small, public and private. How do we do this? First, if we if we slander because we're tempted to, to do this in order to exalt ourselves over others, this is pride, and the answer to, to pride is to behold the cross of Jesus Christ and embrace the reality that we have no right and no grounds to exalt ourselves over another person. You are and I am the chief of sinners, worthy of no praise and no exaltation in this life. Everything I have is a gift of grace i have no grounds to boast over anyone if i understand my condition before the cross of jesus christ 
Our sin was paid for on the cross by the Son of God. God himself in the flesh. Second, if we slander because we're tempted to slander out of a sense of justice, we need to go to Paul's words in Romans 12 and to be reminded not to return evil for evil. Why? Because we can wait for God's perfect justice. God's going to deal with all the injustice perpetrated on you and on me. He's going to take care of it. So Paul says, don't return evil for evil. Don't return slander for slander. Bless and do not curse. Entrust that justice to God. That person who has slandered you, who has, um, who has done evil to you, their sins will either be paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ or they will be paid for in an eternity of judgment. And if, that, if the latter is their end, then we do not want to be cursing them in this life. We want to be praying and, uh, for their salvation and then showing them mercy. And then finally, if we slander because we're tempted to slander because we believe doing so will aid a righteous cause, we must be reminded that it is impossible in the long run for a righteous cause to be helped by unrighteous means. It's impossible. It is impossible for a righteous cause to be helped by unrighteousness, which slander most certainly is. We are to labor, and I mean labor because it's really, really difficult at times to speak the truth in love. So we put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And that prepares us now and clears our palate to pursue a passion for pure spiritual food. So let's look at this next sentence. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So the next point now is to pursue a passion for spiritual food. Pursue a passion for spiritual food. You put away sin. You don't just put away sin. Now you pursue a passion for spiritual food. Both things go together. You don't just pursue a passion for spiritual food. Both of these things go together. And we do it, according to Peter now, with eagerness. We are to pursue a passion for pure spiritual food with eagerness. Now, what we have to take serious in this text is that Peter is commanding us to do something he is commanding your heart to have a particular affection towards pure spiritual milk did you know that that scripture does this doesn't just command your outward actions it commands your inward affections he is commanding us to long for this pure spiritual milk what is god commanding an intense affection for spiritual nourishment just listen how this word's used throughout the New Testament. Paul writes in Romans 1 to the Romans, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. 2 Corinthians 5.2 In this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. 2 Corinthians 9.14 While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Philippians 1.8 For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is a strong word, a passion, a longing, a panting after, a desire for. The kind of desire that keeps you crying out like a newborn baby until you are fed. Peter's calling us to stoke a deep yearning for pure spiritual food. 
and to, through putting off of sin, keep that passion going. Now, some of you might be wondering about Peter's use of milk imagery here. This is this is an interesting use of imagery because elsewhere in the New Testament, milk seems the use of milk imagery seems to indicate spiritual immaturity. In First Corinthians three one, for example, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, I couldn't teach you more substantive truth because you were sinful, you were carnal, and I had to just give you milk and we had to hold off on the the, the more solid food. And the author of Hebrews does a similar kind of thing in Hebrews five uh, 11 through 14, he says, I couldn't give you solid food because you had not progressed beyond milk. You should be progressed beyond milk, but you haven't yet. It's uh, Solid food is for the mature and you're still immature and it's not a good place for you to be. So you come to this and you're thinking, hmm, is doesn't seem like Peter's talking about immat- spiritual immaturity here. What is he referring to? Peter's reference here uh, to milk isn't, uh, as opposed to meat, isn't, or the simple truths compared to more substantive truth is uh, that's i'm sorry peter's reference here isn't to milk as opposed to meat or simple truths compared to more substantive truths nor is peter suggesting that the believers here should remain in spiritual infancy rather he is using the illustration of how an infant desires her mother's milk to highlight how christians should yearn after the spirit the pure spiritual nutrition of god's word Peter's imagery here is meant to emphasize how Christians can and should long for spiritual sustenance, not to make a distinction between levels of spiritual food. You should always be, according to Peter, you should always be your whole life long longing for the mere, this pure spiritual milk, not because you are immature, but because you are, in fact, growing in maturity. It is always a desire for the Christian to long for pure spiritual nourishment. So don't get thrown off by this use of the word milk here. Now, what is this pure spiritual milk? Interestingly, the word for pure is actually the negative of the word used for deceit. It's just adding an A to it. Kind of like if we were to add the AB to like normal. Abnormal means the opposite of normal. Here he means that this pure is the opposite of deceit. This pure spiritual milk is truthful. It's honest. And you cannot receive this pure spiritual milk if you are someone who is cultivating deceit. It, it just can't work. It just won't happen. This pure spiritual milk will be thrown up, so to speak, to use kind of graphic uh, illustration by the one who's filling up their stomach with deceit. They can't mix. So if you find yourself not longing after pure spiritual food, there may be certain reasons in your life, maybe physical reasons. Maybe you need to just get a good night's sleep and maybe get some exercise. It might be, might be physical reasons. You might be just going a down th- in, through a down time in your life. There may be just hardships in your life and you're finding it's having an effect on you spiritually. That could be the case. We need to, to understand that could be the case. But it also could be that you're not dealing rightly with these sins that Peter is addressing and therefore your body cannot handle this pure spiritual milk. There's no longing for it. There's no desire for it. Now, Let's ask, what is this spiritual milk? Well, I've already alluded to it because I've already mentioned that it's the word of God. And I do believe it is. This word spiritual is used in Romans 12, 1 and 2 to talk about our spiritual service to God. But it has at its root the same word that's used up in the verses above that uh, Elder Tim read to refer to the word of God. So I believe in the context where uh, Peter talks about the word of God being the instrument that God uses to be make us born again. And it's what indwells our hearts. And it's the word that was preached to us and so on that here he is referring to that 
very thing. This pure spiritual food is that which comes from the word of God. Peter's saying, put away sin and long for the pure spiritual milk that comes from the word of God. Whether that pure spiritual milk is coming through preaching, whether it's coming through teaching, whether it's coming through discipleship, whether it's coming through your personal Bible reading, whether it's coming through books that you're reading that help you understand the word of God, whatever it might be, it can't be a kind of indifference towards these venues where you receive that pure spiritual food. There must be a longing for it. So let me ask you, how do you prepare for Sunday mornings? How do you prepare for your personal Bible reading time? How do you prepare for your times of discipleship? Are you seeking to cultivate a longing for the spiritual sustenance that you will receive? The psalmist in Psalm 119 says this. This is a good prayer to pray to the Lord in preparation for these times when you know spiritual food is going to be on the table. Psalm 119, verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. You're asking God to incline your heart to his testimonies and not to selfish gain. You see the connection? Not to selfish gain. See, the the putting off of sin that Peter is referring to here that stokes the uh, desire for pure spiritual field. This is not something that he's making up. This is something that he himself is drawing from the Old Testament. And as I've been studying Psalm 119 lately, I think Peter was well influenced by Psalm 119, the way he is talking about growth in the believer's life. But the psalmist doesn't just pray that God would incline his heart. He actually seeks to do what he can to incline his heart. Psalm 119 verses one, uh, verse 112 says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. And so we ask God for it, but then we also lean forward into God, asking and also doing what we can to incline our hearts to long for God's word. And like we've already mentioned, part of that will be the putting of sin to death, the putting away of sin. So we do it with eagerness, but we also do it now, this is the next point, with expectation. The next point on your bulletins or on the app is we do it, we pursue a passion for pure spiritual food with expectation. The goal of all of this This is not aimless. This is not pointless. The goal of all of this is spiritual growth. Peter's not suggesting that spiritual growth is what saves you. See how he says here that by it you may grow up into salvation. He's not suggesting that salvation or spiritual growth is what saves you. We already know what saves you. It's believing the gospel. He's already mentioned that in the passage that Tim read. Genuine salvation begins with the seed of the word taking root through the spirit and creating new life. And that new life is meant to fill out the whole person, to fill out into maturity. That new life began at the initial salvation and it is meant to grow. How should we put, uh, we should put away sin and long for pure milk of the word, expecting that by doing so we will grow spiritually. And just to kind of whet your appetite and to encourage you and to entice you, Let's just talk, let me just briefly list for you the areas of growth that are possible. 
Growth in spiritual wisdom and insight. That's Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 15. Growth in discernment. That's Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 and following. Growth in the knowledge of God. That's Colossians 1, 9 through 12. Growth in the fruits of the spirits. That's Galatians chapter 5. Growth in ministry and spiritual skill. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. Growth in ministry fruitfulness. That's John 15, 1 through 6. Growth in love for others. 1 Thessalonians 4, 10. Growth in spiritual stability. Ephesians 4, 12 through 16. Growth in Christ-likeness. Uh, Romans eight twenty eight through 29. That's what spiritual growth looks like. That's what Peter is calling us to. And that is what happens when you put away sin and you long for the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. Isn't that exciting? I mean, that is exciting. You know, I'll, when I meet with young men who maybe are in need of some discipleship, they're it's early in their Christian life and maybe they're struggling with some sins. And, and I often look them in the eye and I say, what is keeping you from someday being a productive leader in this church, husband, leader at your uh, father, daddy, leader at your uh, work? What's keeping you from this kind of spiritual growth? What is keeping you from being able to grow in spiritual wisdom and insight and the discernment and the knowledge of God. What is keeping you? And the answer I always return after they look at me and going, I don't know, is I say, nothing. Nothing is keeping you from it. If you have the spirit of God and you are a believer, nothing is keeping you from making progress in your spiritual life. Peter's laid it right out here for us. So we do it with expectation. That's just so encouraging. Thank you, Peter, for that. And then finally, we do it with evangelical motivation. Evangelical motivation. This is our last point, and we'll wrap up. Peter adds a sentence, an important sentence after these instructions. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What's this all about? What is he talking about here? This is a kind of prerequisite before the prerequisite, you might say. In... Various colleges, probably most colleges throughout the United States, you have to take the prerequisite of calculus before you can take the introduction to engineering and computing science class. Now, maybe at Stanford and you're so brilliant that you don't need any kind of prerequisite. You can just go straight into these classes. I don't know. But in, you have to take prerequisites in any college setting in order to go from that class into more advanced classes. It's just That's just how schools are set up. You have to have a certain set of knowledge to be before you can go in to apply that knowledge in another academic class right those are prerequisites class prerequisites peter's point here is saying that there's actually another prerequisite namely you have to be enrolled in college before you can or you can be you have to be accepted to the college before you can enroll you have to be in the school before you can start thinking about what prerequisites go before what class with this phrase if you have tasted that the lord is good or in other translations, it says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, I really like that one. Both of them are, are, are very close to what uh, Peter is saying. If you've tasted the Lord is good or the kindness of the Lord, same thing. He is saying you need to be enrolled in college before you can start taking any classes. In other words, it is tasting of the goodness and kindness of the Lord that undergirds the process of putting sin to death and longing for pure spiritual milk. What is he referring to here? He is talking about the nature of of saving faith. Saving faith tastes the kindness of the Lord with the heart. That's what he says here. 
If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good or tasted of the kindness of the Lord, the kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. For the believer, the kindness of the Lord is not something you merely affirm in a doctrinal statement. It's your experience. You've tasted the love of Christ to your soul and you want more of it. There is an experiential aspect to the Christian life, brothers and sisters. Be careful that you don't merely intellectualize the Christian faith. Here, Peter describes this experience as a tasting, not a physical tasting, like eating a good meal and being like, oh man, God is good, which, which is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just, that's not what Peter is talking about here. He is talking about a spiritual tasting with the heart, the goodness of Jesus Christ experienced through the gospel. The goodness of the Lord and the forgiveness of our sin. Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Blessed. Have you tasted that forgiveness? To be a Christian is, by definition, to have tasted that kindness. That kindness to your soul by Christ in the forgiveness that is found in the gospel. Peter's not trying to undermine the assurance of his, uh, of his listeners. He's not attempting to under, undermine the assurance of believers. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, you will desire to put away sin and long for pure spiritual milk. There's an underlying longing for Christ that motivates the believer to make progress in their spiritual lives. I'll, I'll read that last part again. There's an underlying longing for Christ that motivates the believer to make progress in their spiritual life. That is why Peter ends this short little exhortation with, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It is that desire for Christ, that tasting of Christ that undergirds this desire to make progress in our Christian life the love of god known by our souls that's why i use this phrase evangelical motivation the word evangelical can have sociological connotation right evangelicals or the evangelical church or whatever but the word evangelical is just derived from the the word greek word for gospel that's all it means we need gospel motivation in other words, the putting off of sin and the longing for pure milk of the word must have gospel motivation. When you embrace the gospel, it gives you a new taste for Christ and for spiritual things. And this underlying desire compels you to put away sin and pursue spiritual growth. Yes, there are struggles. Yes, our affections ebb and flow. But it is this, un, it is this implanted seed of the word that gives rise to this pursuit of spiritual growth. So how... Do we grow spiritually, brothers and sisters? It's not complex. It's not easy, but it's not complex. Peter tells us that we are to be diligent to put off sin with the resources of the gospel. Then we are to long for the pure, wholesome, growth-stimulating spiritual sustenance of God's word. We put off sin and we drink in God's word and we will grow. That's encouraging. That's encouraging. In a day where... The, our spiritual lives are complexified by the myriad of books and programs and videos and YouTube channels that say there's this secret for spiritual growth and this secret and just grab a hold of this fad and you'll grab it, you'll, you'll get it. When Peter comes along and says, no, oh, no, 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 no. Put us in, long for the pure spiritual milk 
of the word, and you will grow, beloved. You will grow. Some of us have come to believe that merely sitting under sermons or Bible studies guarantees growth. Let this passage convince you otherwise. It is not the mere hearing of a sermon that guarantees growth. It is the diligent and purposeful putting off of sin and cultivating a passion for the word of God that cult, that brings about genuine spiritual growth. Some of us have stalled out in our Christian lives because we have forgotten what we must do as we place ourselves under good teaching. Let us heed Peter's word, put sin away, long for the pure milk of God's word because we have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this clear, straightforward passage. Thank you that... You've given us all the resources we need in Jesus Christ and in this good news that he brings to put away sin and to grow. Simple passage, challenging to apply, no doubt, but simple. Help us keep the simplicity in view when we are struggling. Help us to come alongside one another as we're struggling in our Christian life, Christian life to have compassion, have mercy on one another, to encourage one another to love and good works, to to listen to each other as we wrestle through sins and pray for one another. And I pray that this church would be a church growing not only in holiness, but in mercy and grace to one another. A church not only growing in its knowledge of the word, but in its passion for it and its passion for other people. And I pray that you do this mighty work for your glory and for our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen.